We humbly ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that truth this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. If you're a guest with us today, we're thankful that in the providence of God you are here with us. There is a copy of the Bible in the seat in front of you, and that is our gift to you. We could think of nothing greater to give you than a copy of God's Word. Well, happy Mother's Day to everyone in the room. So thankful that each of you are here So thankful to be able to come together with you week in and week out and sing to the utter irritation of Satan, um, the praises of God to gather around the Lord's Word and to be able to grow in our understanding of our world and of our God. Friends, the world is full of problems and none of those problems though ultimately compare with the reality of the gift that we have in knowing the Father and His Son through the power of Christ. For the first four chapters of 1 John, that is what he has been aiming at. This reality that we can have joy in a dark world apart from the reality that 
we're not going to fix this world. In fact, our joy only comes in Christ. John doesn't seek just to prop us up. He doesn't seek to point us to our own morality or that we can have joy in our own wisdoms or philosophies or that we will live a life of joy by clinging to our accomplishments or our material blessings. He says that we can have joy in Christ and in Christ alone. Friends, there is talk. 24-7 about the problems that we face as a nation, economically, politically, academically, diplomatically, and otherwise. We see the problems in our own culture of the downgrade of the family, the undermining of the role of mothers, the mockery of marriage, the trashing of the church from within and without. But the joy in coming to 1 John this morning is that John reminds us, regardless of those problems, This nation can have lasting joy if it would turn and place its faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. John says that our joy can only come from our knowing God. And that leads me to the greatest issue that I think faces the church today. And that is clearly defining what it is to be a Christian. Many people claim to follow Christ. There are many movements with the label Christian. And individuals often are incensed in our culture by those who call themselves Christians. But the sad reality is many people who bear the name of Christian are not actually what the Bible calls a Christian. Need we be reminded this morning that Jesus said many will come falsely In my name. See, friends, the only thing that matters is that we understand not what men, not what ecclesiastical leaders, not what philosophers and all of the authorities throughout human history say that a Christian is. What matters is that we look to the Word of God and the apostles of God to have a clear understanding of what it is to be a Christian. So I am thankful that we have 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 before us this morning. With that in mind, if you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word. John here, writing under the inspiration of the One who upholds us at this very moment and who has given us all things. He writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the Word of God to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence in amazement at the mysteries that are laid out about Your person and Your work in this short passage. Father, we dare not come seeking to read into the text our own philosophies and vain thoughts, but we come trembling that You would reveal to us more of Your glory and that we would not be a people who are given to idolatrous religion, 
but that we might always come placing Your glory before all things. And we ask in that Spirit that You would write these truths upon all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. You may be seated. Friends, the Puritans were known for coming back to a text over and over and over and over again. In fact, there was this uh, phrase that they used uh, when they would return to a passage more than one Sunday. They would say that there are further gleanings that we can obtain from this particular crop. There's still something left in this field. This verse still holds meaning for us. Uh, one individual to illustrate this point, man by the name of Robert Trail, a Puritan preacher. Because I know some of you are going to say, the reason I'm saying all of this, some of you are going to say, I thought we ended with this verse last week. Don't we, didn't we put a check mark next to it? Friends, never put a check mark next to the verses that I preach because it's always possible that we'll be back there again. Robert Trail preached 13 sermons on Hebrews chapter 14, verse 6, 21 on Hebrews chapter 10, verses 21 through 24, 11 on the first four verses of uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and 6 on one verse in Galatians chapter 2. So I beg of your kindness that I'm here again. What we learn, friends, in this reality that we can come to a text time and time and time again and never evacuate the text of all of its meaning is the reality that the Word of God is deep. Now, we have to see the reality that every text has an immediate argument to be made, a, a, a forceful punch. What is it saying at first blush? And generally, that will, uh, there will be agreement there, not always. But each text is held up in tension by a thousand other verses. What I'm saying to you this morning is that every biblical text can only be understood in light of the thousands of other biblical texts. Every text has to be understood in its context. There is always something more to say about each verse. We, we saw last week that John was wrapping up his argument of chapter 4 that we are to love the body of Christ. And in verse 20, he gives us a case study of what it means to love the body of Christ. And then in verse 21, as he ends, he gives a general reminder that we have been given this command of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to love one another. And that in fact, it is that command which marks the true church of the living God. That we have one for another. And what he did in setting up that structure is he bookended both of those realities, both the case study of one that loves his brother and the reminder of the command of Christ with two grand statements that remind us that salvation is of the Lord. Now, loving the body is the immediate thrust of excuse me, of 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. But there is something that John takes for granted in writing about loving the body. There is an undergirding truth to what he is laying before us this morning. And that something is that he believes that we, if we come to this text this far into the Bible, that we will be aware of the grand doctrine of regeneration and rebirth. At this point, he's writing that we should love the brethren, that we should love the church, but he's writing, couching it, believing that we've already understood 
what it means to be born again. And it is from that point that he draws his conclusion. John gives us this identity of being a family. And in so doing, he's pointing back to the profound doctrine of regeneration. He goes on, assuming that we've understood this, knowing that we are the family of God, and he points back to the reality that we are, if we are to love one another, we will actually be regenerated first by the Spirit of God. And it brings to memory the, 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 the verses that are so well known in John chapter 3, where John writes of this Pharisee named Nicodemus. And this interaction that this teacher of the Word of God had with Christ. You'll remember these words in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that is teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Isn't that an interesting... No, he is God. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. John Flat lays out, it's not that you can't come to the point of a decision to get into the kingdom. You can't even see the necessity of the kingdom without the regenerating work of the Spirit of Almighty God. Nicodemus said to him, Wait a minute. How can... That was the J translation. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is of the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from nor where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? How can it be that we rely on God alone for our regeneration? For our ability to see the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? You see, the Bible from beginning to end exclaims loudly that salvation is of the Lord alone. It's not a theological argument when you bring the apostles and the prophets to bear. It's a theological certainty. Regeneration is the work of Almighty God. It's interesting that John brings up this theme of being born again over and over and over again. And you know what's interesting about the way in which he does that? It never becomes old. It's never boring to John. It is always infused with an electric excitement for the reality that we who were yet at one time dead in our trespasses and sins, feasting, as some have said, in the grave, loving everything of this world, despising the things of God, and yet God in His mercy interrupted us and brought us to saving faith in Christ. 
Brought us to see the glory of what Christ has done for us. So John can't get away from it. In verse 19, where we started last week, he says, We love, that is we love God and we love others. Why? Because God first loved us. Because He preempts anything in our life. John is telling us that we must love the brothers. And this rests... This idea of loving the brothers rests in the whole of the gospel. The first thing that we must understand about what it means to be a Christian is that we must be born again. He says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's as though John says, look, you all know about regeneration. You know about the rebirth. You know that it is something God has done alone. You know this, and out of that, that is how you are to respond naturally in loving the body of Christ. Out of that reality, it just makes sense that you love one another. It may be a grave mistake to make the assumption that we understand these doctrines in our generation. In fact, I would say that it is a grave mistake because there is so much confusion about the gospel and about what it means to genuinely be a Christian. There have been 2,000 years. When, when John wrote this letter, he said there are many false teachers who have gone out into the world. That was 2,000 years ago. They've not stopped since. They continue to perpetrate falsehoods about what it means to be a follower of Christ. And friends, I can tell you this on the authority and certainty of the Word of God, that if individuals perpetrate false gospels, they are not loving no matter how kind they seem. They're hateful people. I mean, friends, if we stop just for a moment and we think about our friend Nicodemus that we just read about. John is is here writing after that narrative. And saying there are false understandings about salvation. But Nicodemus, who was a teacher of the Word of God, a Pharisee, an individual who had looked long into the Word of God, and when Jesus says the only way that you have a hope to salvation is by the regenerating power of God, Nicodemus goes, well, how can that be? You see, friends, many teachers might come and explain to you what it means to be a Christian, but if their teaching is not accurate and true and rooted in the Word of God, it doesn't matter. You know how many people will find themselves on Judgment Day convinced that they were Christians, but in fact, they never were born again. So it's so important that we understand this Rightly, It's so important that we understand what makes us a Christian. And it's easy to misunderstand this. So the question this morning is simply this. What, beloved, makes you a Christian? Now the problem is, as soon as I ask that question, someone is going to answer, and we tend to, all of us, in these ways. Well, it is, it is who we are. It is our faith. It is our belief. It is what we do. It is our works. Now, there's only one problem with these kinds of answers. And the one problem is that the Word of God never speaks in that way about being born again. 
The Bible never makes the argument that a Christian is one who ultimately has brought himself to repentance and faith, who is ultimately the one doing the work of believing, doing the actions. That is not what the Bible teaches. So the first thing we have to get rid of is the idea that what makes a Christian is anything that we have produced or anything for which we are uh, responsible. Listen. To the terms that the Bible uses... Oh, we have a call. Listen to the terms that the Bible uses in connection with what it means to be a follower of Christ, a regenerated member of the body of Christ. The words regeneration, renewal, new creation, being born again. Now we can do one of two things with these words. We can come to these great words that speak of God's merciful act of bringing us to faith by the Spirit alone. And we can worship Him for the reality of what He has done. Or we can come to wonderful words like regeneration, renewal, new creation, being born again, and we can twist those words to fit our theological religious heritage, and we can make them mean something that we do to bring ourselves to saving faith. I pray that we would not be those people. The better thing to do is to stand face to face with these words and praise God for what He has done. The first thing then that makes us men and women Christians is something that is done to us by God, not something that we do ourselves. Listen to what he says in this verse we're dealing with this morning. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who comes believing Preceding that belief is, has already been born, has come out of the regenerating power of God. God, according to John, is the one who births us into the kingdom. This, is, this issue, uh, the issue rather, is that for most people, the defining reason why they are a Christian is not found in God, but in themselves. That's the greatest heresy, I believe, perpetrated against people that gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. They will come into worship and they will say, I have a good life, therefore I'm a Christian. I go to a place of worship, therefore I'm a Christian. I do certain things, therefore I'm a Christian. I believe, therefore I'm a Christian. And the whole emphasis is not upon the God of the heavens who has in His triune mercy poured out salvation on worthless sinners. The emphasis in those statements is on man himself. And what happens, what flows out of that type of false Christianity is a monstrous perversion of being a believer in Christ. What ends up issuing out of a belief that says, well, my being born again is all contingent upon me, is it ultimately makes Christians who are self-absorbed and arrogant. People who think that they are great. And what ends up happening is they become grand in their own mind. And I think inadvertently, without even trying, their God becomes small and trifling. 
the Bible teaches, rather, that we are Christians by the work of God alone. He who begat, He who produced, He who regenerates, He who gives life and being this very moment. We cannot be a Christian at all if it were not for the work of God. So the first thing we have to come to understand is that a Christian is not one who has ultimately chosen to be a Christian. A Christian is, is one who God has set His love upon before the foundation of the world. And in a moment, the Spirit of Almighty God has regenerated that individual to see their sin and depravity and to see the glory of Christ and to fly to Christ in repentance and faith. Second, we must realize because God has done it, God will also complete this work. He has given us something at the point of regeneration. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We receive something of God Himself at the moment that we are born again. A Christian is is not something that can just be done externally. Being a Christian is not something physical. It is a reality that we have been given the divine nature. That we have been taken from death and brought to life. It's a reality that John never got over. He wrote of it in the first chapter of his Gospel, verses 11-13. through 13. He came to His own, that is Jesus, and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is this Greek word that every one of us needs to understand if we're to understand what a Christian is truly. And it's the word ek. My first time that I took a Greek class, I had to memorize all of these Greek words in succession. So how am I going to remember ek? This word that means out of. And to be honest, I don't think that she knows this, but my sister helped me in this. She's here today. Growing up, if there was the smallest insect on the planet in close proximity to my sister, she would make a, a, a noise kind of like that. Ugh. And then it would be followed up with, get, get it out, get it away from me. And, and part of what this word means, that picture in my mind, out of. We need to root our minds in this, that, that there is this same idea that the way naturally mothers bring their children into the world, so we come out of God apart from anything that we do. Now here is an interesting thing to think about this morning, not in the notes, but we're here today celebrating motherhood, and people will do this all around the country whether they're Christians or not. There is this common grace of motherhood and the reality that we rejoice in our moms. The ones that put up with us for so long growing up. Some of us need to probably go and tell our mom, thanks for not killing me growing up. <laughs> Amen. Uh, we celebrate the reality that, that, that our moms gave us life. That they were so kind and caring for us and, and, and loving us. 
But if you come into the church of God and you say in a similar way, ek, out of, that we came out of our mother, that Christians come out of God through the regenerating work and renewal and rebirth that God and God alone can bring, you have a theological debate on your hand. Our moms can birth us, that's fine, but how dare God do that? Do you see the absurdity of our generation? In profaning God and what He does to build His church. Do you know what Jesus said to Peter? Just one phrase of what He said to Peter. I I will build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to attempt to build my church. I'm going to try real hard. I'm going I'm to stand at the sidelines and beg people. He, no, no, no. He said, I will build my church. And the method the way uh, that he chooses to build his church is by regenerating sinners unto spiritual life. To bringing them to salvation. So we've been given by our birthright uh, uh, part of the divine nature. Being Christian has nothing to do with anything in us. It has everything to do with being born out of God. This is... Not something ultimately material. It's something that we receive spiritually. It's a new outlook, a new disposition. We see the church of God. We see the people of God differently. And we thank Him for the reality that we have now this divine imprint on our heart. You know, it's interesting to think about God's creative work in Genesis chapter 1 and how when God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in them, God did not put His essence, He did not put His nature into creation as a whole. But in the new creation, in bringing us to saving faith, He does something more miraculous than speaking all of the stars out of nothing, ex nihilo, speaking everything that is, exists today uh, out of nothing, it, it comes to be. That's an amazing thought to think upon. But He does something even more miraculous in bringing an individual who is dead in their trespasses and sins to new life. And that is He imprints upon them His divine character. He gives them spiritual eyes to see the depravity of their nature and the reality that they must believe on Christ and on Christ alone. He writes upon their heart a desire to cry out, Abba, Father, I need You. What a joy it is to realize the profound reality of what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means that we are not what we once were. God has done something in us. If any man is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, the new has come. To be a Christian is to realize that there was this old man who had earthly appetites, who loved this world, who lived everything in, in their existence for the current life, and that was it. But now things begin to change being born anew. We have an, a hunger, an appetite for the things of God. We realize that we are not like the rest of the world. And someone who is not in Christ would hear that statement and say, oh, there you go again. Arrogant, boastful, prideful Christians thinking that you're something better than the world around you. But friends, that's not what it means to be born again, to, to be given the new nature. In fact, I think that we're given kind of a, a picture of the right attitude of being grateful for our rebirth in Luke chapter 18. Many of you will remember this narrative. 
He also told, that is Jesus, this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast t- twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Christian can never say, God, thank you that I'm not like that other man. Because intrinsic to the Gospel is we understand we're born anew and that there is no way for us ever to say in the face of the Gospel, I'm not like the least of these. In fact, we say, but by Your grace, God, I'm exactly like the rest of mankind. But by Your kindness and Your mercy in my life, I would have never been born again. God is... In His mercy, has revealed to us our need for saving faith as we are regenerated, and then and only then do we become Christians. So we don't look at others with contempt. We look on them praying to God that He would show them mercy as He has shown us. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born, comes out of Ek, out of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of God. So the, the other reality in the life of a Christian that we've been seeing is that Christians actually like to be with other Christians. And that doesn't mean that they always like everything about everyone around them. It doesn't mean that all personalities mesh well, but all of a sudden when we are born again out of our rebirth, not out of our own nature, our own ability, we look at the church and we go, I enjoy being with these people. I love fellowshipping with these people. I love my relationships inside the body of Christ. I had a friend tell me a couple weeks ago, I met just in passing, and he stopped me and he said, you're that pastor from that church over in Santa Rita. And I said, yes. And he said, I love your preaching. And I thought, you poor soul. Um, And and then he said, I I haven't been a Christian for very long. I've only been a Christian for 10 years. And, And he said, man, I used to hate Christians. And I just thought in that moment, amen, isn't that the truth for all of us who are not reborn by the Spirit of God? We're so irritated by Christians. We roll our eyes. We, we think, good night, these people are a lot. Especially those preachers. They're the worst. And I would agree with that. Even, never mind. Different sermon, different day. But the reality is, God in His kindness gives us a new heart. And when we can find joy in Christian fellowship, we should stop and praise God knowing that the only reason we find that joy isn't because of some moral tendency in ourselves. It is because of the regenerating power of the Spirit of Almighty God. I mean, that's what Paul would tell us. Do you remember what he told the church in Galatians uh, of Galatia in, the, in his letter to them, the first chapter? He says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. 
Now that's what the gospel does. Takes the one who is so opposed to the gospel, living in his flesh, wanting to be thought of as this brilliant scholar and, and all of his theological headiness, and that man persecutes and hates the church of God. But when God interrupts him on his, on his way to Damascus to persecute the church and regenerates him, births him anew into the kingdom, then Paul becomes an instrument for the grace of God and the flourishing of the gospel. The reality uh, of the glory of the gospel comes home in light of Paul's sin and juxtaposed thinking about Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 15? Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns in repentance than over 99 righteous persons who have no need of repentance. The joy of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is this. That the one who was the very instrument of martyrdom and death for so many in the first century church will ultimately come home to heaven to the cheers and applause of those who he martyred. And not because of who he is, but because ultimately of what God did in Paul. Paul is a trophy of the grace of God. Paul is an example of what it means to be dead in your trespasses and sins, trying to do things religiously in your own strength. But none of that avails salvation until God shows up and redeems. You see, we look on our brothers and sisters and we don't see all of the things that divide people in the here and now. We look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and we see something miraculous and it is this, that they love the same Savior that we love. And it's not something that's beheld with the eyes. It's something that we know in our heart as we begin to speak with another Christian and we begin to talk about the things of God and we see the joy and the excitement and we see the love and the tears and all of the, the, the warmth over the Savior and what He has accomplished through His acts of redemption on the cross. It is then and only then that we see, yes, this person has been born again. Friends, you can claim to be a Christian. You can have your name on the church rolls. You can do all of the things that a church program has to, to offer, but none None of those things avail themselves to make you a believer. Only the Spirit of God can do that. You see, the joy of the Christian church, do we not live in a day and age where everyone in our secular society is clamoring that we need to be unified? And yet we're ne we've never been more divided. We've never been more in our corners and, ha and we identify with all of these different ideologies and all of these different ways of looking at the world and all of these different political labels. And there's no hope of ever there being true unity in, in the lost world. But the reality of the Christian church is that you have people of every conceivable temperament and psychological makeup, every background, every ethnic group, and they come together loving one another. Why? Because they are all part of the same family. And that's not something they've done in and of themselves. It's not something they've earned. It's not something... They've worked themselves towards. It's something that God and God alone has done. We, we, we rejoice in one another. We rejoice in our fellowship because we know that our salvation is from where? The Lord and the Lord alone. 
So the question this morning is, are we aware of the fact that God has begotten us? That He has birthed us into the church? Do we know that God has produced in us and in ourselves a desire to love the body of Christ? As we examine ourselves, have we come to say, I am not what I used to be. By the grace of God, I've been made anew. And I am what I am only by the grace of God. So not only is a Christian one who has been born of God apart from any works that he could do or she could do in and of themselves, there are also people who love the body of Christ. But finally, we need to see the fruit of believing or or, or of our regeneration, the fruit of being a Christian. There are some people who say our salvation is the fruit of our belief. That because we believe, therefore we are saved. Friends, that's like someone saying, look at this apple, it grew a tree. I mean, it's completely reversed. The only reason why we believe is because we are saved. Salvation precedes faith. Listen again to what he says in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the fruit, not the root. Everyone who believes has already been born of God. John says, show me someone who believes that Jesus is the Christ and I will show you someone who God has already redeemed. You show me an individual who realizes who Jesus is, what His office is, what He's done, and and believing on Him and on Him alone, not trusting in their own works, not trusting in their own religion, not trusting in their own decisions, but in Christ and in Christ alone. You show me that person and I will show you one who God has already redeemed. There's no such thing as believing or having faith in order that we might be a Christian. It is that we are birthed anew so that we might believe. The the faith is the fruit of salvation. The question that has dogged the church for years and has sparked so much theological debate, again, is which comes first? Is it belief or being born again? There is nothing in the entirety of the New Testament that teaches that, that, that rebirth uh, is after faith. That rebirth is the fruit of faith. Man is dead in his trespasses and sins apart from God. We need God to bring us out of the grave and to give us new life. Remember what uh, John, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's reason enough to rejoice right there. What what John is saying is not just that individuals who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, have actually experienced new birth. He's very specific. Those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, 
that He is the Redeemer, that He has come to save, those are the ones who ultimately have been born again. Many of you uh, probably, if I ask you, what is the most famous American sermon of all time, you will have at the forefront of your mind Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I don't know in your high school curriculum if it was the same for mine, but we had to read that as, a, as an illustration in our English class of Puritanesque type theology and thought and the way that they wrote and all of those kinds of things. Um, the, the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is not thought of in terms of its theological content in our country anymore. Uh, I think that we probably could faithfully retitle the sermon Jonathan Edwards in the Hands of Angry English Teachers um, because it's just used as fodder for how stupid people were to once believe that they were sinners in need of the grace of God. But friends, can I tell you that John here is saying that in the year 2022, he's writing to us that the first thing you need to understand about yourself is that you have this great need not for material wealth, not that you would never experience physical pain or suffering, not that the whole world would be made right in accordance with all of your feelings, but you have a desperate need to be set free from the wrath of God. That you are by nature a wrath bearer. That apart from repentance and faith, you would rightly receive the just penalty of your sin. This was so commonplace. Uh, and in fact, if you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you will get this understanding that Jonathan Edwards wasn't this angry preacher coming at people. He was preaching truth that was so vividly understood in his cultural context. In his sermon, he writes these words, There are black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for a moment stays His rough wind. Otherwise, it would come down with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind and you would be like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. You would be driven away. Jonathan Edwards is saying that in love, begging people to turn in repentance and faith and come to Christ because as he continues in the sermon, Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands calling and crying with a loud voice for poor sinners to turn in repentance and faith. What The connection here with 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 is that those who believe that they are justly condemned without the saving work of Christ and believe on Jesus and on Jesus alone for the atoning work that they need to be set free from the wrath of God. Those are the ones who the Spirit has born anew. Christians aren't people who explain their sins away. Christians aren't people who, listen, most churches, I'm convinced, in our generation want their pastors and the scholars to rewrite the Bible so that they feel comfortable. True Christians come to the Bible and beg that God would reorchestrate and rewrite the affections of their hearts. 
The, the, the true Christian comes to the Word of God and knows he's condemned, but also knows the mercy and the kindness and the love of Christ and says, change me. Make me uh, bear the image of Christ and make me to walk in a way that is well-pleasing to you. You see, the reality is that John uh, 1 tells a sad story. That verse that we read earlier, verses 11 through 13 of uh, John's first chapter of his gospel, it says that Jesus came to his own people, but his own people didn't receive him. The Son of God condescended and came to men and women that they might have salvation. And what did they do? They rejected Him. It's a clear picture of the sinful nature of fallen human beings. Paul wrote about the, rea- the same reality in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 7. He says, But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Part of what, what John is saying, or what Paul is saying, is the same thing that John says really in the first chapter of his gospel, and that is the natural man doesn't perceive of who Christ really is. Left to ourselves, we don't understand. And, and I think Paul points to the princes, the rulers, those who have all of the best scholarly uh, counselors and those who could encourage them the best and would have the most winsome speech, went to the princes or could have gone to them, didn't, but could have gone to them and explained who Jesus was and would have, it would have been totally lost on them. Why? Verse 14 of the same chapter, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so somebody is going to ask, then how in the world, Jay, can anyone be saved? I'm glad you asked. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And what we learn is this, that only the Spirit of God, friends, listen to me, if you have confessed with your mouth that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah, you need to understand that it is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God alone that could have revealed that to you. It is only the Holy Spirit who can give the right profession of who Christ is. And so... Even if individuals want to argue, well, we have to call on the name of the Lord and then we are regenerated. Well, we have to come back to, well, how can we do this in the first place? And the answer is the Spirit of God alone. And to argue against that is to to put on full display your own arrogance. To think that you would rightly see who Jesus is when the rest of the world has passed on into destruction without the working of the Spirit. It is by God's Spirit that we believe. There is nothing in a sense that seems to be so contrary to the New Testament than the suggestion that as natural men we can believe unto salvation. Rather, we have salvation so that we believe. A Christian is one then who believes something very particular about Christ Again, it's not that we would be set free from all of the difficulty of this life. 
It's not that we would be thought of well. It's not that our neighbors would, would agree with us. It's not that the world would say, you know, I think these Christians have some really good wisdom in the Word of God. I mean, how many problems do you all hear on the news cycle that you think, man, God's Word speaks to that? This week, and I'm not trying to be political here, but this week, the, the leaking of the document uh, that is supposedly what we've been praying for for decades as Christians, coming to the forefront. And it stirred up all of this conversation about um, the sanctity of life and the reality that every child is made in the image of God and every child is worth um, life. Um, And there are so many people that want to stop and say, yeah, but this circumstance, yeah, but that circumstance, and on and on and on and on. And friends, ultimately the Word of God can speak to all of those situations, but the reality is it will not matter in our generation unless God regenerates those in our day and age. Friends, we can't build the church. That's something that only Christ can do. It's why it's so important that when we're alone in our homes, that we bow our face before God and we beg Him to awaken this nation. Now, if in fact, Roe versus Wade is overturned, and I pray to God that that is what comes to pass, the fight is not over. In fact, and I mean this with respect, I think that's a small battle. The real thing that we ought to pray for And we should rejoice in what God's doing providentially here. But the real thing that we ought to pray for is that God would bring our nation to its knees in repentance. That God would open the eyes of authorities and positions of leadership and show them their individual need to turn in repentance and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We should beg that God would pull the scales off of the eyes of so many who are in academia. That they would see that wisdom and knowledge begin first in Christ. We should beg that those who are students and work alongside of us in different institutions in our community would come to savor and to love Christ. That is the only answer to the dilemmas that we face. And so it's with that in mind that I think it's so important that we understand what a Christian is. We have spent so many decades in this country just being willing to say, well, if you'll fill out a card and let us get you wet, we'll call you a Christian. What is the fruit of that kind of ministry? Turn on the TV and look around. Go outside in our culture and see the fruit of those kinds of ministry. When we have a low view of defining what a Christian is, we are going to wind up with a church that has a low view of who Christ is. Because it's only the Spirit of God that can bring us to the right profession. So we must bow our knees knowing that, friends, to be a Christian means that we're going to be despised, we're going to be poor, we're going to be sinful, we're going to be mocked, we're going to be sick, we're going to be weak. There's nothing of glory in us. But to be a Christian means that we are individuals who God has graciously shown us His Son. You see, Christians aren't people who are just trying to be better. They're not people who are morally superior. They're not people who just do good things. They're, they're not people 
who just go to rallies for this political cause or that political cause. A Christian is a person who has been born of grace alone, a person who loves the church of God, and a person who bears the fruit of belief in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are people who have been loved of Jesus, and only because we've been loved of Christ do we love Him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, know that the true Christians in this room think no less of you because of your past or your sin or all of the things that have brought you to sit in the pew or in the seat uh, here today. But the true Christian does genuinely want you, desire you to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement to my unbelieving friends in the room today is talk to someone about who Christ really is because I think that too has been muddled uh, in our generation. You see, friends, I think that really a Christian can be boiled down to one who has ceased to see glory in its fullness in the things of this life. A true Christian is one who is longing to see the face of Jesus who knows that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us in the last day. A true Christian is one who is willing to love through the thick and the thin of of seeing other sinners come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. A, A true Christian is one who loves the body of Christ and who will lay down everything in their life for the glory of God in that local body that they are a part of. A true Christian is one who rejoices when he hears the words of John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A Christian is one who knows that he has been redeemed by grace alone to the glory of God alone. Might we praise Him throughout all of our lives for that reality. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence. We acknowledge the weightiness of the issues in our own day and age. We acknowledge all of the political rancor and battle and fights. And Father, we know that You have told us here in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 that we are of You. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So, Father, knowing that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, we pray for our neighbors this morning. Uh, We know that Christians aren't merely those who gloss over their lives with a bumper sticker label of your name, but Christians are one whom you have birthed anew. And so we pray, Father, for awakening in our own generation. God, help us not to be sinful in thinking that all of the great spiritual revivals are behind us. Might we see Your mighty hand at work in our own generation bringing people to saving faith. And might we give You all of the glory knowing that You are the only one that could bring that to pass. Might we humble ourselves before our neighbors and never declare a Gospel of something that we have done, but always declaring the Gospel that Jesus came to pay the penalty of sinners. And Father, might we always be honest that we are sinful people. And we are only loved because of Your everlasting grace. Might we bring You glory in our generation and for all time. In Christ's name, Amen. If you would, stand and we'll sing Precious Lord. Amen.